coming up to speak from God's word. I'm standing on God's promise that he will be with me and that he'll be with us as we listen as well. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we want to hear from your word. But we know that we need your help. And so I pray that you would help us to hear from you, that you would stir in our hearts greater love for you. May we be awed at your majestic love and authority that we just sang about, that you have all authority and you love us deeply. May we be convinced of that this morning. In your precious name I pray. Amen. Well, this morning is the beginning of a new year, the first Sunday in January. And so I talked with Brian last week and we decided we'll take a break from Philippians for this one week and we will start off the new year with a sermon that's focusing on the marching orders that Jesus gives us at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. And many Christians over the years have called these verses the Great Commission. The Great Commission. Now, a commission is um, it's, uh, uh, something, it, it can be used in different senses, the word commission, but in this sense that we're using it today, the commission, a commission is something someone in authority gives you to do. Okay, so if I give my children a commission at the end of the day, go clean your room, I'm in authority, and that's their marching orders for the next, hopefully not longer than now, half hour. Um, and so they get a commission. Soldiers get a commission from their commanding officers. Go attack that ridge, capture it, and hold it at all costs. That's a commission. Bosses give their employees a commission. Go stock those shelves. Go work that register today. And so here in Matthew chapter 28, we read the final words of Jesus Christ, where he charges his disciples and all future Christians everywhere with a commission, a charge, a command, what he wants us to do. And so if you'd like, I'd encourage you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, so Matthew. And at the, all the way to the end, chapter 28, and then all the way to the end of chapter 28, we're going to be looking at the, first, the last four verses of this Gospel. Five verses. So start at verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely... I am with you always to the very end of the age. So what I'd like to do for the rest of our time this morning is walk through these verses in three main steps, okay? First, we're going to look at the authority of Jesus. 
from verses 16 to 18. Then the second thing we're going to look at is the command of Jesus, found in verses 19 and the beginning of verse 20. And then the third thing what we're going to look at briefly is, is the promise of Jesus, and that's found at the end of verse 20. So the, the authority of Jesus, the command of Jesus, and the promise of Jesus. And then for our concluding application, we're going to talk a little bit about how we as a church here in Granville, we're, we're trying to obey Jesus' commands in 2020 missionaries that we're supporting that are going to the nations and then we're going to have an opportunity to obey jesus together as a body and you'll see that jesus commands us baptize and we're going to obey him together as we baptize richard and kim so that's what we've got going on today verse 16 to 18 i'll read them again we're going to see the authority of jesus then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So remember, Jesus is risen from the dead now. And he says, go to this mountain and I'm going to meet you there. It's like Jesus is about to lift off, right? It's like we're, we're, we're going to have the final lift off and Jesus is going to ascend his heavenly throne. The rocket's about to take off, right? Go, go to the launch pad. <laughs> this is Jesus' launch pad, the mountain. And he's about to go take his heavenly throne. So go to this mountain. And when they saw him, verse 17, they worshipped him. But some doubted. They're still doubting. It's amazing. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So this is the final scene of the Gospels. On a mountain, Jesus is with his followers, and they're worshiping him. Wait, I thought we're only supposed to worship God. That's right. Jesus, the risen Christ, is God. And they're worshiping him. Luke's gospel, not Matthew's gospel, but Luke's gospel tells us he's about to ascend the clouds. And he describes his ascension through the clouds as he's raising his arm, blessing the disciples he takes his heavenly throne. But Matthew, it just ends with Jesus' final words to the disciples. Matthew assumes we know the story. We know where Jesus is headed. But what Jesus says here about himself in Matthew is very, very important. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We could summarize this point very simply. Jesus is the boss, period. Okay? Like, Jesus is the boss. No questions. That would get to the heart of what's going on. But, we, and we can move on from there, but we're not going to. I want to I give this statement that Jesus makes maybe a little more significance in your mind and in your heart by, by setting it in the context of the Bible's whole story. Okay, We're constantly doing this as we read the New Testament. We go back to the Old Testament and set what's being said about Jesus in the, in, the, in the context of the whole story. And so back in Genesis, everything starts there. We're constantly going back to Genesis. Adam 
The first man that God made, along with his wife Eve, they're put in charge of the first creation that God makes. They're supposed to rule over everything on earth. In Genesis 1, verse 28, God says rule over creation. What does a king do? A king rules. So Adam is the first king. He's supposed to rule over the world. He's supposed to be a good king, right? And take care of God's world. He has authority. All authority over earth is given to Adam. But instead of ruling creation, Adam listens to the words of the serpent, which we find out in the Bible story is Satan. This evil spiritual being who's opposed to God and to God's rule. And Satan is said to be the craftiest of the beasts of the field in Genesis 3. The craftiest, that word for crafty, we only translate it crafty there. The rest of the places in the Bible, it's called wise. The word is wise. So why do we, why do we translate it crafty? Well, because it's this being that's using wisdom in a crafty, tricky, deceitful way. What's worse than an evil fool? An evil smart person. Somebody who's brilliant and evil is a lot more dangerous than somebody who's foolish and evil. And Satan is the craftiest, the most crafty and wise of all these beasts. And he's crafty. He's the craftiest of the beasts. And he sneaks in to the garden. Adam was supposed to rule over the beasts of the field. You made him ruler over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the seas and all that swim in the paths of the seas. That's Psalm 8. Adam was supposed to be ruler over the beasts, and yet here we see a beast sneaking in. And not just any beast. A beast being controlled by the devil, and the devil gets the authority. He takes, the, he takes Adam's rule away from him, basically. He becomes the ruler of the earth as Adam listens to the devil's words. Oh, okay, I'll listen to you. I'll obey you now. And he plunges all of creation into sin and death and sickness and rebellion and darkness. Everything bad that we see around us is because of this rebellion. Satan becomes the ruler of the world and everything dark is the mark of his terrible reign of terror. But in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, we see Genesis 3 reversed. I'll say that again. Daniel chapter 7 is Genesis 3 in reverse and even better. In other words, let's say a room gets filled with trash. How are we going to reverse the situation? You've got to clean up the room, right? This world is broken because Adam lost his authority. We need another Adam to take it back, all right? And Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promised he would send a son of Eve, actually. A son of the woman. 
would come and defeat the snake, reverse the curse. And so Daniel 7 gives us this picture. And Daniel 7 stands behind everything Matthew says in chapter 28. So Daniel 7 is so important. We don't have time to go into all the details, but I'll just read it for you and, and, and highlight a couple things. There we're given a vision of another Adam who regains all authority over earth again. And not just earth, but this Adam in Daniel 7 gets more. He ascends to a heavenly throne, indicating he has authority over heaven and earth. There in Daniel 7, this Israelite prophet named Daniel. Anybody have a friend named Daniel? This Daniel was, I have a cousin Daniel. Daniel was a great prophet in Israel. And he had a vision, a dream. And in the vision, Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 to 14, we read this. You don't have to turn there if you don't want. Daniel gets this vision. As I looked in my vision, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. That's God, the Ancient of Days, the Eternal Ageless One. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. So you're like, wait, a throne with wheels. In the ancient world, the kings would ride chariot thrones. Their throne would be a, a chariot. So this is a flaming chariot throne. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. So this is a judgment scene. They're in court. Who's going to be judged? Listen to the next verse. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words of the, the horn. What's a, what's a horn? In the Bible, a horn was a symbol of, of strength. A sheep has a horn and it is a... You know, deer have horns, right? And the, the bigger the horns, the less you want to tangle with them, all right? A symbol of strength in the Bible is a horn. And that's why a king is called a horn sometimes. And there's this little horn that's bragging a lot in Daniel. He's this evil king. He's also compared to a beast, a beastly king. We heard that language in Genesis 3. And he's speaking in Daniel's dream. And he keeps looking, and the beast was slain, and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. And the other beasts, also now there's more beasts. These beasts are like kings, evil kings, evil horns, evil beasts. They're stripped of their authority, but they're allowed to live for a period of time. Okay, so we could talk about that for a long time. Just know these beasts are bad kings on earth and their authority is yanked away and they're destroyed then verse 13 in my vision at night i looked and there before me was one like a son of man literally one like a son of adam coming with the clouds of heaven so remember where is daniel he's in the heavenly courtroom there's god's chariot throne He's surrounded by millions of angels and he's there in God's presence and he sees one like a son of Adam coming up from the earth. 
ascending on the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given, listen to what this son of Adam is given, authority, glory, sovereign power, kingly power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So, in Daniel, you see these beasts get their authority yanked away and they're destroyed. Okay? And you see a son of man, a son of Adam, lifted up on the clouds of heaven and given authority and a kingdom and power and dominion so that it, and it will never be destroyed or taken away. Nothing can ever happen to his authority. He's the boss forever and ever. And the beasts, they're going down. That's the picture. Now, remember who the first beast was, the craftiest of the beasts of the field in the Bible. It's Satan. And so these, why are these kings of the earth called beasts in Daniel? It's because they are under the rule of Satan. They are following his ways of darkness and evil and using power and authority to hurt people. You know any kings in this world today or rulers that seem like beasts? We could, there's a whole list. History's full of them. Millions of them. Beast-like kings. You ever seen somebody whose power goes to his head and you're like, you used to be my friend and now you're my boss and I don't even know you anymore. You're like a beast. Satan corrupts power and authority. He loves to, and that's what he did with Adam. The first man corrupted his power, and he's been doing it ever since. These evil earthly rulers, they rage against the Lord and against his people. But here in Daniel, Daniel's having a vision about the future. And what is he seeing? He's seeing Matthew 28. He's seeing the ascension of Jesus into heaven. One like a son of Adam. Jesus ascends the clouds and he joins God on his heavenly chariot throne. Apparently it's a two-seater. God and the God-man on the throne. And Jesus is given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and all peoples of the earth are to worship him and all these beastly kings of the earth, they will be eventually destroyed. Their kingdoms will not last. But one day, in the new creation, the dominion of Jesus will be the only dominion. And it will never be taken away. His kingdom, his kingdom Daniel says, is one that will never be destroyed. So, back to Matthew. Jesus is about to reenact Daniel 7. Genesis 3 is about to finish being reversed. Jesus has beat death, which came at Genesis 3. He's defeated Satan, the evil beast, by defeating death, by resisting sin and temptation. Jesus is the Adam that Adam should have been and wasn't. And after all of this victory, he's going to go take his throne. And he ascends through the clouds. But before he does, he has a group huddle with the disciples. And they're worshiping him. Just like Daniel said. He's going to be worshipped 
the Son of Man? They're worshiping Jesus. Matthew wants you to see that connection. And then he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he tells his disciples, listen up, guys. You are going to have a key role in making the rest of Daniel 7 happen. In verse 14, Daniel 7 says, People from every language will worship Jesus. The team on the mountain, guess what? They all spoke one language, Aramaic. They were Jews. They probably spoke Greek too because that was the trade language of the day. But they were Jews. And Jesus says next to his disciples, as they're worshiping him on bended knee, go and make everybody everywhere worshipers of me. Extend my rule and reign to the ends of the earth. Which leads to the second point this morning, the command of Jesus in verses 19 to 20. Jesus' command has three parts, and we're going to look at them together. These three parts don't necessarily come across as commands in English, but basically, there's one command with three things hanging off of it. All right? Make disciples going, baptizing, teaching. You get that? Make disciples going, make disciples baptizing, make disciples teaching. So all of them are under the heading of make disciples. How? Go, baptize, teach. And so we're going to unpack those three things next. First, make disciples going. The disciples can't help people learn about Jesus by staying on the mountain. No, they have to go. They have to go make disciples. So they're called apostles, which means sent ones. The word apostle means sent one. They are the sent ones. And so are we. And so we go to make disciples. We go into our homes as we get home from work. And we seek to disciple our kids. We seek to help them learn the way of Jesus by the way that we live and by the things that we say. We point them to Jesus. We go into our workplace and we seek to make disciples there. We don't have to preach at people. That might not go over well if you've got, you're supposed to wait on customers and you're preaching at your coworker. What does make disciples mean? It means help people learn about Jesus. A disciple, the Greek word disciple means learner. Some people say follower. It's, that idea is in there too. But we, we are learners. Learners of the way of Jesus. And so we follow him so we can learn. That's the connection between learning and following. We follow Jesus so we can learn the way of Jesus. We want to live like him. Disciples are learners of Jesus' way, and we make disciples by helping people in every sphere, sphere of our daily lives to learn about him. When we go to our family gatherings and to the store, to the places that we frequent, we want to help people learn about Jesus by the way we act, by the things we say, by what we do. And the going to make disciples, it doesn't stop with those right in front of us. 
We actually are called by Jesus to seek people out. Listen to these words from Jesus to his disciples in a different place in Matthew. At the beginning, Jesus says to them in Matthew 4, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. So, if you follow Jesus, you're to fish for people like Jesus. My brother Ben loves fishing. Anybody else like fishing? I know Richard likes it. Jim, Lydia, Brian likes fishing. I like fishing, but I had to pick a hobby, and I like hunting better, so I, I picked hunting. Ben loves fishing about as much as I like deer hunting. Both of us will walk miles and miles to find what we're after. For me, it's big deer. There's not a lot of them around Granville, so I'll walk 10 miles in the Adirondacks to find one, okay? Uh, for Ben, it's new trout streams. He'll literally walk eight miles to go find a stream at the top of a mountain that nobody's fished in a long time, and he'll, he'll, he loves that. If Ben gets to that stream and he sees somebody already fishing there, he keeps moving. Oh, that one's fished out. Keep moving. If I get four miles deep on a mountain range and come to a spot that looks good and then I see a tree stand in trash, this joint's already been taken. I'm moving on. On to the next ridge, okay? Somebody else is working that area. And this translates over to fishing for people as well. I want to fish for people that nobody else is fishing for. For many, many Christians, this actually means go somewhere else, far away, to make disciples of people from other nations. We usually call these cross-cultural disciple-makers missionaries. You ever heard the word missionary? Um, it's been said that all people, all Christians are supposed to be missionaries. Um, we're on mission to make disciples, so we're all missionaries. That's our mission. And, and, and that's true. You know, some people say because we went to Granville and started a church, we're missionaries. That, that, I mean, maybe that you could say that. But we, I like to try to keep the word missionary um, reserved for those people that are going cross-cultural so that you know some people will say well just say you're a indigenous missionary and they're a cross-cultural missionary all right whatever missionaries when you hear me say the word missionary as, as a pastor here uh, what i mean is people that have gone someplace else they've they they've left their homes to spread the good news about jesus they're going to fish for men and women in places where there's no churches, where there's very few churches even. Um, and as a church, uh, we actually are a part of cross-cultural missions in supporting these missionaries financially and in prayer. These missionaries, they're men and women who have heard Jesus' command to go and they prayed really hard about what going meant for them. And for them, they could not get Somalia off their hearts. And so Ryan and Carrie and their six children, 
picked up everything and moved to Somalia because there's no Christians in Somalia. And now there's a few, right? Or there was, oh, there was hardly any. There's no church in Somalia. You start a church in Somalia, you're killed. Very hostile place. But Ryan and his wife are there, and my wife and I support them, and it's a joy to be a part of what they're doing. Because nobody's fishing in Somalia, because nobody wants to die. And yet, they're there, and there are some others there, praise God, that are fishing. That's far away. It's a lot further than a five-mile hike in the Adirondacks. We're going to talk about some of the missionaries our church supports in a few minutes, but I want to look at the second part of the command. That's going, make disciples. The second part, Jesus says disciples are to make people learners of Jesus by baptizing them. We're going to talk about baptism a little, just a little snippet about baptism in a few minutes before Richard and Kim get baptized. But baptism is the first step that someone takes to publicly identify themselves as a Jesus follower, as a disciple. And nowhere do we ever see someone baptize themselves. I baptize me in the name of the Father. And then it's like, eh. No, you don't baptize yourself. It's something that's always done to you by those who are making disciples. Why? Because the family of God is responsible for making people part of the family for hearing their testimony. So we had the joy yesterday of Carl and Karen, Brian and Angela and Holly and I had the joy yesterday of sitting down with Kim and with Richard and hearing their testimony, their story about how Jesus has saved them. And we, are, we did that. It's not just a formality, okay? It's, it's, we, 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 yes, we want to celebrate and rejoice with them, but we also want to make sure what they're getting into. They know what they're getting into, okay? And they do, by God's grace. So, disciples baptize those who have really decided, I want to follow Jesus. My friend uh, Ryan Tom and uh, my friend uh, Charles Ackman were in Somalia, and they had this video. They were doing a baptism. That's illegal in that country, okay? If you baptize a Somalian and they find that out, you're dead. And so they're baptizing somebody in a backyard. And, uh, of course, backyard, it's like a courtyard, and there's people all on the roofs, right? And there was nobody on the roofs, so they waited, and they, they got their iPhone video in the baptism, and uh, it said, baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son. And all of a sudden, somebody walks out on the parapet, like a ways away. But there, I can't remember exactly what happened, but there was a quick scurry to get everything... Whoop, whoop, out of the water, you know, it was very fast. And they're, oh, were we seen? Were we seen? But they were baptized. They knew what it would cost them if they were caught. They had counted the cost. And they said, following Jesus is worth it. It's worth it. We don't baptize people, though, and then just throw them out into the world and, and say, okay, you're on your own now. Live for Jesus. Have fun. Good luck. No. Sadly, that's sometimes done in churches. They, they baptize people and never, you never hear from them again. Um, did those people get discipled continually? Discipleship is a journey. Baptism is the beginning. Do you see that in Matthew chapter 
28 verse 20, baptizing them and teaching them. Teaching them what? Teaching them to obey some of Jesus' commands? No. Everything I have commanded you. So, Richard and Kim, and anyone that gets baptized, is beginning a lifetime journey of learning to take every part of our lives and bring it under the rule of the king. And boy, that takes a lifetime of learning. Jesus is the king, and that means something. So now, as we go, as we baptize, as we teach, Jesus gives us a precious promise. That's the third point this morning. Jesus says, verse 20 at the end, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. By his Holy Spirit's presence, Jesus is with us. We've got a helper, a comforter, a teacher, a guide, a friend. Jesus' spirit is in us. He's over us. He's with, for us if we trust in Jesus, which is really comforting. If you're going through your life trying to make disciples, you quickly realize this is over my head. Discipling my kids, helping them learn about Jesus, that'll keep me on my knees. It does. I need help. And it is comforting that we're not alone. Jesus is with us. Jesus goes with you on every fishing trip. Okay? So if you look at your, your pool of people, think about who is in my my pond, the pond that I fish. Who, who do I see regularly that nobody else is fishing for? You know? That, that you know, nobody is telling them about Jesus. Go. Go fish for them. And I, I'm not saying you got to go preach a sermon to them. Don't do that, actually. <laughs> Unless they ask you, tell me about Jesus. That's basically an invitation preached to me. All right? But ask them, do you know who Jesus is? Questions are great. No. Do you know what the gospel is? Would you like me to tell you? The gospel's changed my life. It's the good news about what Jesus has done. And with that, I just want to show you right outside our, our front door um, here, the entrance to the auditorium. These are little tracks. Um, Christians have made little tracks, pamphlets, for many, many years. Okay, Some are good. Some are terrible. Some are just in the middle. Uh, and by terrible, I mean they're just like, that's not the point of Christianity. Like, you know, it's got like flames on the front and <laughs> turn or burn. You know, like that's, somebody's just going to rip that up. But within the context of a relationship, these can actually be really helpful little tools. What is the gospel? You have a short little conversation about somebody with somebody about the gospel? Leave them with this. It'll take them five minutes to work through this. It's, it just tells them what the good news is. Hey, 
Do you know who the most famous person that ever lived is? More songs are sung about him, sung to him, more prayers are prayed to him than any other person in the world? It's Jesus. You thought about Jesus? Eh, not much. He's my favorite curse word. Who is Jesus? You should, you should really learn about Jesus because Jesus is the king of the world and he's coming back and you, you want to listen to him. All right? Or... And the Bible just a bunch of stupid myths and old stories? Why do you believe what the Bible says? Here, this is why I trust the Bible. Think about it. So, there's stacks of these, okay? Take a, take a handful. Give them out. But again, don't lob them at people, okay? Like, there you go, you know? Maybe, I mean, but it's far more effective if you do it in a context of relationship. You're having a conversation with somebody... And Jesus comes up. Guess what? If you really love something, you'll find a way to talk about it. See how I worked hunting into my sermon? Because <laughs> I like hunting, right? Whatever. We, we find a way to talk about the things we love. If you love Jesus, you'll find a way to talk about him. And if you struggle to talk about Jesus, guess what? Guilt's not going to fix that. Guess what's going to fix that? Love for Jesus. So spend more time with Jesus. Pray to Jesus more. Read his word more. And the more that you grow in your love for Jesus, it's just going to come out naturally. The times in my life where I have not been pursuing the Lord as hard as I should be are the times where I am not driven to go fishing. I get comfortable. But remember, this is our mission. This is what Jesus commands us to do. He is the boss, and he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he tells us to make disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching. What I'm going to do next is just point out a couple ministries that we support as a church. Ministries of people who have gone out to disciple the nations. And so the first couple, Gary, you ready to do the slideshow? We've got a few couples' uh, pictures. Um, maybe Carl, could you hit the lights up front just so we can see the John and Caroline Pictures more clearly. There we go. You guys see that okay? Yep. This is my friend John and his wife Caroline and their three kids, uh, Phineas, and I'm trying to remember the other. Piper. Piper. Phineas, Piper, and the new one I definitely don't remember. Moses. Moses. Okay. Very original. Very original name. Phineas and Moses. Yes. So. Uh, John, I've known John and Caroline for nine years. Uh, we went to seminary together with Brian. We were part of the same cohort group. So we were like family. We, we did everything together. And John, John loves Jesus. You just hang out with John, and you just want to love Jesus more. I, John is one of the most gifted preachers that I've ever sat under. Um, the, the man just moves your heart to want to love Jesus more. And uh, I really, uh, in two weeks, John is going to Skype in with us, and I'm hoping I can find a way to get it up there. Uh, and John is going to share for five minutes during our prayer time, five to ten minutes, who he is, what they're doing. And uh, he's got, John has enough energy to drive a small steamship, so you'll, you'll probably catch that. He, he's just an awesome guy. And uh, they love Jesus. They are in Dubai. Dubai is the most populous city in the United Arab Emirates, right in the Middle East. You can find it on our map and all of it. 
And John is there actually with another friend of ours from seminary, Luke, and his wife, Laura. And um, they are pastoring a new church there, and they are ministering to the nations. Dubai is a crazy popular tourist place. People come from all over the world to Dubai. It's an extremely wealthy city. It's very, very fast-paced. The tallest tower in the world is it, or skyscraper in the world is Dubai. I mean, it's you think Middle East, third world country? No, they're they're more advanced than us technology technology-wise and stuff in Dubai, and yet there are so few Christians. So few. And John and Caroline, because people come there from all over the world, they saw that as a very strategic place to disciple the nations. And so they are there helping people learn about Jesus. And one of the really cool things, they showed us a video of a baptism service that they did several years ago. And I forget all the nationalities, but I knew that I know there was a Sri Lankan, a Texan, and a Nigerian. I just remember those three, and there were several others. And like the the the, the Texan was being baptized by a Nigerian and the Sri Lankan. I mean, it was just pretty awesome. And they're all speaking English for the most part, because that's like the, the language they all understand. And so John and Caroline are there telling people about Jesus. And we support them as a church for $75 a month. And so part of what you give on Sundays, you're, you're making disciples by your giving. You're make, helping make disciples in Dubai. And the beautiful thing about that is because their church is filled with Iranians and Afghanistan and Greeks and all over, it's just an amazing thing. So um, that's John and Caroline. And uh, we want to grow better about introducing them and praying for them in the days to come as a church. This is my brother right under me. I have seven brothers, so that's the one right next to me, Luke. Um, I'm closest to Luke of all the brothers, probably no surprise. And his wife, Marian. Marian is Dutch. She was raised in the Netherlands. And their daughter, Grace, and they have another baby named Tikva, which is Hebrew for hope. And, and they, they, they wanted to name her hope, but we have a hope, so they, they uh, named her Tikva. Loophole. So Grace and Hope and Luke and Marian are serving Jesus in Papua New Guinea. Okay? Papua New Guinea is an island near Australia, a big island. And it has people, it has over 800 different languages on it, okay? That's a lot of languages. And Luke works for an organization called Wycliffe, Wycliffe Bible Translators. John Wycliffe translated the Bible into English many, many years ago, about 500 years ago, all right? And it was illegal to do back then. Long story. We won't get into it. But he risked his life and gave his life to translate the Bible into English. And so Wycliffe Bible Translators is translating the Bible into languages all over the world. Thousands of languages. People give their entire life 30, 40 years of their life. They go to a tribe. No written language. It's not like they have books in their language. No. They make an alphabet. They make a language they translate the Bible into that language. It takes a lifetime. Well, they're doing that all over Papua New Guinea. Wycliffe is. They have hundreds of translators. They're translating the Bible in Papua New Guinea. As we speak. But there's a problem. 
These translators live their whole lives and they give their people the Bible and then they're like 65, 70 and they have to leave. And the Bible's a big book. There's a lot in there. They need to be taught to obey everything that Jesus has commanded them. They need discipleship. They need training. So Luke and his wife started a ministry. Actually, his wife started it and then Luke joined it. And then they got married. Um, after three years of road trips with the team, they fell in love. Well, I think Marianne fell in love first, and then Luke saw the light. Uh, and they got married so they could team up more easy. And they oversee a ministry called SALT. So, uh, Gary, you can go to the next slide. SALT. Um, this is the most recent one they did. Uh, these people, the, the Mato people, the Mato tribe, they got a New Testament. So there they are with their brand new New Testaments, okay? And the, they're probably still working on, the translators are probably still trying to translate the Old Testament. They usually work on the new first. So they're, they're, they got their New Testaments, but they have no idea how to read them. It's like, here's a Bible. So Luke organizes teams of people to go. Right now, they're not going on these trips because they're stationed in the Netherlands while Marianne's waiting to have her baby Tikva. But they hope to go back. And they organize these teams that go of four to eight people, and they teach for two, sometimes even three weeks. They teach sun up to sundown the Bible. And, and they have people come from all over. So, Gary, you could go to the next slide. Um, that's, a, that's an example of men, women, they're studying the Bible together. And uh, so this was from their most recent prayer letter. I have <coughs> four copies of each of these prayer letters. One of John and Caroline's, which is this one, and one of Luke and Marianne's. I'm going to leave them up front. I get them in email format, but if you would like to take one home and read through it, I encourage you to do that. Pray for them, and then bring it back if you would. Um, or maybe just take pictures of it on your phone if you want and read it that way. Whatever you want to do. But <clears throat> let's circulate those so we can be aware of what they're doing. Here's some testimonies. Praise God for the salvation of a prominent gang member and the salvation of another young man who is a suspected sorcerer during the Guatique salt course. All right, so that was a different tribe. Mato course leader David Sam shared... One thing I observed about the people of the Mato language group is that they didn't have a clear understanding of the word of God. They were more entangled in their religious doctrines and cultural beliefs. The salt course was the light of Christ that brightened the darkness in their minds and hearts, giving them a clear view of the path they were traveling on. It became the turning point in, their, in the lives of many who had their focuses in the wrong direction. So, a lot of false teaching there, a lot of witchcraft, sorcery, and evil spirit worship. The demons are real, and they're very active there. And Christians have to be convinced by the Bible, and by reading the Bible through the power of the Holy Spirit and through teaching that Jesus is Lord, which means no one and nothing else is. And so that's what Luke and Marianne do. Right now, Luke's doing those from a distance, and we support them now for $100 a month. Little part of what they do. <laughs> Rachel and Marcy, I'll move through them quick. We sent them a gift at the end of the year, last year, for $2,000. They, Rachel is my sister. Um, she married a Hungarian. So my, 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 two of my siblings are married to Europeans. Uh, Marcy loves Jesus, and that was enough for me. 
Okay, she can marry him. Uh, he loves Jesus, that's okay. And he has taken her, uh, you can go back here, he has taken, taken her to uh, Hungary, where he grew up, okay? Um, there you go. And uh, they, are, they started a new church. Well, they kind of came alongside a really struggling church that had eight people. And um, it's, it's, they've moved into a bank now, and they're worshiping Jesus there every Sunday, and they're seeing people come to faith in Christ. They are serving Jesus on the front lines. Hungary as a country is a very dark place. Very, very few people truly, <coughs> truly know Jesus there. And they're in a city of about 20,000 people. And uh, so we sent them $2,000. They're trying to build a house so that they can be there long term and uh, spend the rest of their lives there. So uh, hopefully, Marty and Rachel, you'll get to see them in this summer. I think they're coming. And uh, you'll get to meet them. Marty shared here a few months ago when, when they were stateside. So uh, that's their two boys, my, my nephews. Um, so, yeah. Now, we get to do something special today, as we've already mentioned multiple times. Even as our missionaries that we support, um,